Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 183, Ragnar's Siege of Paris. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Brenda, Taylor, and Thor. That's right, Thor. I'm not making that up. So thank you, Thor. And if you want to join Thor in his quest to protect humans from giants, and of course supporting independent podcasts, you can do so for about the price of a latte per month. Mjolnir's not included. Okay, so I got an email this week asking, as we're going to be talking about Ragnar, that I'd be nice about the History Channel's Vikings. This isn't the first email I've received asking for this. Apparently, a lot of you are very attached to that show. And my thought on it is this. I watched the superhero television show Arrow, and I know it's not good. I know the melodramatic writing can be cringeworthy, and I know that many of my friends make fun of me for watching it, but I watch it anyway because sometimes you just happen to like something that you know is crap. Liking Arrow doesn't make me a bad person, but it also doesn't make Arrow high-concept art. And you aren't a bad person for liking Vikings, but it also doesn't make Vikings historically sound, or even written well. Seriously, that show has some of the worst mustache twirling I've ever seen, and I watch Arrow. On purpose. So there you go. No, I'm not going to be nice about Vikings, but you don't have to feel bad about it if you watch it anyway. You do you. Alright, on to history. The 845 Siege of Paris. This is a big event for medieval Western Europe, and it doesn't come out of nowhere. The surge of Northmen, and in particular, the Danish attacks against Francia, had a starting point. This wasn't a simple matter of pagans picking a random point on the map and charging. The Vikingers may have been motivated largely by money, but the Danish political structure had something else going on that was leading them to Frankish towns. So let's do a quick summary of where this all comes from, because what happened in Paris wasn't only predictable, but it also provides a pretty good view of where the West went wrong. You could say that the starter pistol sounded when Charlemagne put to death 4,500 unarmed Saxons who had surrendered to him in 782, which was 11 years before Lindisfarne. It's true that the Vikingers seemed to be largely just pirates, doing what pirates do for the early period following that event, so I don't think that we can reliably link their behavior to any political goals or cultural response to what happened to the pagan Saxons. But what was coming out of Denmark was something else entirely. It was large-scale, and it does appear that the slaughter in Old Saxony had reverberated throughout the pagan north. I find it hard to imagine that the Danes, who were right on Charlemagne's borders, just like the Saxons, weren't influenced by the massacre at Verden. And then Charlemagne made it clear that he was a threat to Denmark when he started doing military operations along their border, and started building allies and establishing puppet rulers in Denmark's neighboring kingdoms. That was aggressive. And as we've spoken about in earlier podcasts, we did see a dramatic increase in Thor worship in the archaeological record that corresponds to this sudden Carolingian action in the north. And as you might remember, Thor was the god of defensive war and independent podcasts. So this very well might be evidence that Charlemagne scared the hell out of the Danes. But it also appears to have woken the wolf of the north. 
And I want to make this part very clear because it's a common misconception for this period. Not all Scandinavians were Vikingers, and many Vikingers weren't even Scandinavian. But this next bit is really important. The Scandinavian kings were not necessarily in control of the Vikingers. The assumption that people place on this era would be a bit like imagining that all 17th century Englishmen were pirates. And on top of that, assuming that the crown had control of Blackbeard and his compatriots. These Vikingers were pirates and mercenaries and brigands. They were out for their own goals. They were often multicultural and they appear to have been motivated primarily by one thing. Conversely, what's coming out of Denmark looks like it was a bit more political, a bit more of a clash of cultures, a response to religious and military aggression, and frankly, a bit more in keeping with the engine that drives a lot of European history. Consequently, not long afterwards, in the early 9th century, we saw King Gudfred of Denmark crush the Frankish navy so soundly that Charlemagne was forced to stand down and seek peace. And not a white peace. Charlemagne had to give up part of Frisia. This was an unambiguous defeat for the mighty Franks, who were seen by many as Rome reborn. Charlemagne had been crowned as an emperor by the Pope himself. And yet here he was, having to abandon some of his territory to this pagan King Gudfred of Denmark. Now, King Gudfred was assassinated about a year later, and his replacement was friendlier to the Franks. But it turns out that, after everything that had happened, peace with the Franks wasn't very popular in Denmark. So the new king was turfed out, and it wasn't long before Horik, son of Gudfred, reigned as king. And Horik was a bit like his dad. But all these red flags didn't stop the Frankish interventionism. Even after Charlemagne died and his son Louis the Pious took the throne, it continued. Something that Louis should have paid attention to was the fact that he inherited a destabilized empire that was being hampered by some of his own family members who were kind of dicks. And he also had a massive amount of territory that would be a nightmare to defend. But across their northern border, in Denmark, King Horik had inherited a kingdom that was rapidly growing in wealth. It was highly defensible, and it was comparatively unified. Louis really should have stopped poking that bear. But instead, he maintained the Frankish effort to destabilize the Danish kingdom. A great example of this is in the story of one of Horik's rivals, named Harald Clack. Harald was causing problems for Horik, so wanting to nip that matter in the bud... Horik had Harald exiled. And because Emperor Louis the Pious was looking to continue his father's policy of destabilization, Louis immediately opened his doors to the exiled Danish noble. This obviously was a huge boon to Harald Clack, because Emperor Louis started championing Harald's claim to the throne. And after years of effort, in 819, Louis finally forced the Danes to accept Harald as co-ruler of the region. The problem was that it would have been obvious to everyone that Harold was not much more than a puppet of the Frankish court. And think about this. We have a son of Charlemagne carrying out his father's work and coming into conflict with the son of Gudfred. History was repeating itself in almost perfect symmetry. But if Louis thought he could do better than his father did, he should have considered the fact that people, no matter what era of history, 
don't seem to like it when outsiders start placing puppet kings on thrones. There was only one way this was going to end. But while Harald wasn't very popular in Denmark right now, given the political and military situation that Horik was in, there wasn't much that could be done about it. That is, until Harald converted to Christianity in 826. That gave King Horik the political capital that he needed. And in the following year, Harald Clack was exiled from the kingdom once again. He would never return. And this left King Horik as the last surviving son of the mighty King Gudfred, and also the sole unifying king of Denmark. He really was a man who was cut from the same cloth as his father. Honestly, if you want a model of a strong Scandinavian ruler from this period, King Horik should definitely be on your list. And oh boy, did he ever have an axe to grind with the Franks. And the timing for that couldn't possibly be worse for the Franks, who were suffering through a series of civil wars under Emperor Louis the Pious. There had already been one, and there would be another two more before Emperor Louis would die. The stability of Francia had vanished and the empire wouldn't fully stabilize for the rest of Louis's life. And his sons would actually take those issues and make them worse. The underlying source of Francia's problems appeared to have been greed, terrible interfamily conflict resolution skills, and a complete lack of empathy and foresight on the part of Louis and others. For example, Lothar and his brothers launched a war against their father, Louis, because he gave lands to their half-brother, Charles. And yet... After that war had ended, Louis gave another massive chunk of land to that same half-brother, Charles. And he was apparently shocked that Pippin launched another civil war and gained the support of Lothar and Louis the German. This is Louis just not knowing who his sons are and lacking tact and good sense. But good sense was apparently in short supply because if we learn anything from these civil wars... It's that the Carolingians would do anything to win, even if it hurt them in the long term. And they were doing things like hiring Vikingers to raid their rivals. So, warriors were pouring into Europe, no doubt spurred on by the abundance of targets for plunder, the lack of defenses, and the presence of short-sighted nobles who would seek their aid in attacking their local rivals. The sons of Louis would hire them to fight their father, or hire them to fight each other, or hire them to defend against other Vikingers. The point being that there was a wealth of jobs available. So why wouldn't you go to Europe during this period if you were handy with a sword? This was a gold rush in the form of loot and labor in Western Europe. But, as you've already likely realized, historically, mercs don't benefit empires in the long term. Because once you stop paying them, or once they realize they can make more money raiding you instead of working for you, suddenly you have a serious problem on your hands. It happened to Rome. It happened to the post-Roman Britons. It happens all over the place. And so far, all these civil wars and the hiring of Vikingers as mercenaries, all that it accomplished was that it made the Vikingers wealthy and it expanded their ranks exponentially. Sadly, and predictably, the people who suffered the most here were the common folk, especially the people of Frisia, since the Danes were free to raid their lands pretty much at will. Well, sort of. See, the trouble with raids is that the raiders start to get rich. And as they get rich, they start to gather more followers. 
and then they start to get ideas. So raiders, especially the Danish raiders, might have found themselves walking a tightrope, wanting to take advantage of the open season that was occurring in Frisia, but also not wanting to do so well that they gained the attention of King Horik. That might be why, when Emperor Louis the Pious began to complain about the raiders, King Horik claimed that he had nothing to do with them, and said that he executed those who were responsible. The question, of course, is whether or not that's true. And that's always the question, isn't it? On the one hand, he very well might not have ordered the raids, since he might have wanted to avoid the possibility of open war with the Franks. After all, when those messages were sent, Francia was in a rare period where the nobility weren't bitterly fighting wars against each other. So the possibility of having the Franks unify and direct all their anger at Denmark might have worried King Horik. And it would give him the opportunity to execute some wealthy rivals, while also currying favor with Emperor Louis. So it's entirely possible that he did this. It's also possible that he wanted to hammer the Frankish territories, though, just like his father had done, and that he was behind it, and he simply lied. It's hard to say, but King Horik was not necessarily allied with the Vikingers, and particularly the successful ones might have posed a direct threat to his rule. He even exiled some of his own raiding family members, and as you'll see later on, Horik might have been in conflict with Ragnar himself. So if you want my opinion, King Horik probably was at least partially telling the truth here. I bet he decided to dodge war with Louis while also getting rid of Olaf the Vikinger who was nipping at his heels. But even if he didn't order the raids, it's not like he was peaceful or that the raids lessened during Horik's rule. In fact, the raids of Dorostad that started in 838 had become so common that by 840, chroniclers were referring to it as a Viking fief. The international political situation here, with its wildly competing incentives and goals, is absolutely fascinating. This is why it's important to look at all the different incentives and events that occur, rather than just blithely accepting the bullet point versions of history. Because it's in all these little details where the real story is playing out. Anyway, so here we have King Horik. And even if he didn't order the raids, he still would have caused the sphincters of Christendom to clench. He was a powerful and successful Danish king who controlled a huge army, a huge navy, and he wouldn't bow to foreign interventionism, and he refused to convert to Christianity. For the Christian West, this was shocking and scary. Though, I'm sure they would have done the exact same thing if Horik came over, wanted to place his friends on the throne of Francia, and then demanded that everyone accept Odin as the one true god. So it is all a matter of perspective. But the threat that he and his contemporaries posed was not helped by the fact that when Emperor Louis died in 840, his sons launched into a three-year-long civil war. There was a feeding frenzy that occurred after that event, with opportunistic Vikingers raiding, acting as mercs, and taking advantage of the weakened empire. And King Horik no doubt also benefited greatly from this event. Now the Civil War ended in 843, with the Treaty of Verdun. And while it was good for Western Europe to have an end to that fighting, it didn't come without a cost. The Great Frankish Empire was to be divided into three kingdoms with Charles the Bald holding West Francia, Louis the German holding the East Franks, and Lothar holding Middle Francia. 
Breaking up the empire wasn't really the best of plans, but it at least stopped the three-year-long civil war. The peace wouldn't last forever, of course, because Charlemagne's kin weren't all that fond of each other, but at least the fighting had stopped for a moment. The problem was that though the fighting had ended, no one was rebuilding the Frankish Coast Guard. And one of the maddening things about this period is that rather than putting their efforts in that direction, a not insignificant amount of royal treasure was being funneled instead towards hiring Vikinger mercenaries to help them either stop the raids or establish supremacy over their rivals. And this wasn't just kings who were doing this. Nobles of all ranks were hiring these pirates. And the trouble with hiring mercenary pirates is that once hired, you have absolutely no control of how the Vikingers would go about their business. This is highlighted by the incident where a group of Vikinger mercenaries was hired by an ousted rebel count named Lambert. He wanted to retake Nantes, so he hired a band of Vikingers to use as his own private army. And along with his Vikingers, he approached Nantes, which was apparently in the middle of a festival. And his intent was to take the city and hold it. But instead, the Vikingers swept in and killed everyone. Men, women, children, clergy, everyone. And then they carried off everything that wasn't nailed down, and presumably wished the Count good luck in his new town. The damage was so extreme that a chronicler wrote, quote, The city of Nantes remained for many years deserted, devastated, and overgrown with briars and thorns, end quote. I'm guessing that wasn't exactly the resounding victory and acquisition of lands that the Count was looking for, and he probably regretted paying for the services of the Vikings in advance. Yet, despite the terrible Yelp reviews, these nobles kept hiring them. And of course, there were always bands of Vikingers ready for employment. Nantes was not an isolated incident. It was what was happening in the West writ small. And of course... The people who were suffering the most were the people who had nothing to do with this and no control over anything. And it gets worse. When the rare group of peasants banded together and tried to hire a group of Vikingers to defend them, either from other Vikingers or the machinations of their terrifyingly capricious nobility, the nobility would stop doing whatever they were doing and direct the full violent force of their ire at those same peasants. So even if the peasants could manage to get enough money to hire some Vikingers to defend them, even then, it wouldn't end well for them. There were literally no good options for the vast majority of the European population. They just had to hope that they wouldn't be killed by bands of pirates, or by soldiers led by their lord's enemy, or just on the whim of their local nobility who didn't like them. And with this conflict, the inequality of the era broadened ever further with common people eating dirt to fight back hunger pangs, while the mercenaries in service to the lords, and even their horses, were eating fine meals and living in what must have looked like an era of plenty, provided that they didn't take notice of the common people who were starving. One Frankish chronicler referred to the lives of the peasants of this era as, quote, a crying shame, end quote. And it really was. But something interesting is that, for as scary as the Vikingers, mercenary or otherwise, were, there was a key factor that made the Danes in particular the premier Scandinavian threat to the Franks during this period. And that factor is this. While many of the more isolated Scandinavian cultures weren't necessarily aware of Frankish politics, 
the Danes were engaged. They were paying attention, and they had repeatedly shown that they were willing to exploit Frankish instability for their own gain. Consequently, with all the internal fighting and distraction, we see the Northmen, especially the Danish Northmen, making enormous strides in their raiding activity, going from small hit-and-run tactics to massive occupying forces. And it wasn't like they were a small issue to begin with. They were a serious problem pretty much from day one. But they got even worse while Emperor Louis fought against his sons. And then they really cranked it up to 11 when his sons decided to fight amongst themselves. So Danes of all sorts, not just the kings, were getting quite powerful during this period. And as a result, it wasn't just large kingdoms like Denmark that the Franks had to worry about. They also had to worry about wealthy Vikingers that the Scandinavian kings couldn't or wouldn't control. And these people commanded fleets large enough that they behaved almost like kings themselves. And this political situation is how we ended up with the daring Viking raids of major towns like Dorstad, Noirmoutier, Rouen, Antwerp, Nantes, and Quintovich. It's also how we ended up with a major raiding base that was established at the mouth of the Loire. And it's how we ended up with the English Channel becoming pretty much Vikinger territory and how we've been seeing these armies of Northmen wintering on the continent and even in the British Isles. So that's where we are as a region. We have easily recognizable threats that have been announcing their presence for literally decades. And we have European kingdoms weakening themselves through things like civil wars, failing to put energy into the one thing that's been protecting them, their Coast Guard, and generally ignoring the problem that was growing, even as it escalated. And sometimes they even did things that made the problem worse. I'm looking at you, Carolingian rulers. And that brings us to the spring of 845. The year had begun with King Horik leading a massive fleet up the Elbe. And when I say massive, I really mean it. Apparently, he had 600 ships, though that was almost certainly an exaggeration. But it still must have been huge. And he was sailing up the Elbe to confront Louis the German of East Francia. And once he reached Hamburg, he looted it and burned the cathedral. But the thing is that that wasn't the only fleet that set sail that year. We're also told that Jarl Regan Harris, or as we know him, Ragnar, was leading a fleet of 120 ships down the channel. It's not clear if this was a different fleet or if it was part of King Horik's fleet after they returned from Hamburg. But whatever the case, this was also a very large fleet. And for the people who watch Vikings, Hrolfer, also known as Rollo, would not have been on that fleet unless it was take-your-kid-to-work day, because he would have been a baby. It's also possible he wasn't even born yet. But even if Rollo wasn't there, we're still talking about a huge amount of people on this fleet. We're probably looking at somewhere between 4,000 and 7,000 warriors sailing down the channel, depending on how tightly stacked these ships were. That isn't a raiding band, that is an army, and a massive one at that. The wars we've been speaking about in Britain usually only consist of a couple hundred men, or at most, maybe one or two thousand in total, like both sides. But here, for just one battle, we have between four and seven thousand warriors that are just on one side. This is crazy. And then, that huge fleet took a left, and they started sailing up the Seine. Now, the mouth of the Seine used to be a pretty solid bulwark. 
and it had stopped Viking raids in the past. But in the last two decades, those defenses have broken down, and now Ragnar's Vikingers appear to have been able to sail right up the Seine with little to no resistance. After passing Louave, they began following the twists and turns of the river, taking advantage of the shallow drafts on their boats to press ever inland. And the first major town they reached was Rouen. Rouen was already known to the Vikingers, having suffered a raid four years earlier. And not wanting to look a gift horse in the mouth, Ragnar ordered his men to disembark and raid the unprepared and likely poorly defended Frankish trading town. This raiding, however, delayed the fleet, and that gave King Charles of West Francia the time he needed to arrange his forces. We don't know how many men Charles had managed to draw to his banner, but it was probably a sizable force. And while King Charles was young, only 22 years old, he had been fighting wars for a good portion of his life. His very existence had caused one war, so he was no stranger to conflict. And upon seeing what was coming his way, he took his forces and he arrayed them a little downriver from Paris. The plan was to protect the Abbey of Saint-Denis, which had been in his family since at least the days of his great-grandfather, Pepin the Short. It was one of the royal possessions, and as it was a medieval religious house, it was undoubtedly quite wealthy and occupied by various allies and extended family members of the crown. Charles was not going to let the Abbey go the same way that Lindisfarne and Iona had gone, so he took his army and split it in half placing one half on one side of the river and the other half on the opposite bank. You can imagine Ragnar seeing this and grinning like a wolf. Usually you have to use trickery and battlefield maneuvers to divide the forces of your enemy. But here, King Charles had done it for him. And it's not like the two forces could easily rejoin if things started going badly. There's a big bloody river between them. So, Ragnar did what Vikingers do. He spotted the opportunity and he exploited it. His men quickly disembarked, and they overran the smaller of the two forces of the West Franks. The fact that their army was so easily defeated must have been shocking. But the fury of what they were facing was hammered home when Ragnar and his men took 111 prisoners, paraded them on the bank of the river in clear view of the other half of the Frankish army, and then hung them, knowing that there was nothing that Charles and his men could do to stop it. Now, even if there were trees available that they could use, this would have taken a very long time to set up and carry out. 111 men is not a small number of people. This could have taken hours, maybe even a day or more if they had to set up a gallows. And all the Franks could do is stand there and watch. Helpless. It's said that Ragnar did this to honor Odin. And maybe he did but he might just have wanted to terrify the Franks. And it did exactly that. The Frankish warriors deserted in droves. Punctuating the terror would have been the casual and workmanlike behavior of the Vikingers. With the prisoners executed, Ragnar and his men reboarded their longboats and just continued their journey upriver. For them, this was just another day at the office. The urge to abandon his duties must have been overwhelming for Charles. Because... What could he really do against Ragnar and his men now? He lost over half his men in battle, and who knows how much of his army remained. 
Chances are that every time they passed a shrub, you'd have men dashing into the underbrush in an effort to avoid the near-certain death that awaited them. But while Charles might not have had a sound strategic mind, and there is plenty to criticize about him, at least he didn't run away after this loss. He stood strong. The trouble was, though, that he also didn't run to Saint-Denis. Oh, he went there, but the march was slow, and probably really demoralizing. So in late March, on Easter of all things, Ragnar and his Vikingers arrived at a largely undefended Paris. And of course this happened on Easter. To date in the BHP, Easter has been a day for assassination attempts, murderous wives, and fleets of Vikingers. These days, you usually just have to suffer through an awkward political discussion with your drunk uncle. But back then, it was a full-contact brawl. But that being said, we are relying on scribes. And those scribes are more interested in truth than fact. So for them, saying that events that shocked the Christian conscience occurred on Easter might have had a certain ring of truth to it, even if it wasn't factually correct. Now we're told that the Vikingers got to Paris before Charles did, and they rushed into the area and began looting the Abbey of St. Germain. And apparently the only resistance they received was that they caught some sort of illness. The ecclesiastical records recount this as divine retribution and as a sign of the miracles of St. Germain. Now, because these records were recorded by churchmen, they are rather sparse on what happened outside of the abbey. The truth for them, and therefore the real point of the story that they were relating, was that these Vikingers were the enemies of God, and that, due to the might of St. Germain, and of course God, they have been cursed with a plague. But the thing is that Paris is big. It was big even back then. Granted, you can't throw a rock in Paris without hitting a holy building of some sort, but there are also just a ton of people who are living there. Normal people. Average people. Yet peasants, craftsmen, cobblers, traders, you name it. Paris was teeming with life. And suddenly, it was also teeming with between four and 7,000 Vikingers in search of money, slaves, and an unsavory idea of a good time. So even if we're being conservative in our estimates, we're looking at probably about 4,000 battle-hardened warriors. And that many people can do a lot of damage to a civilian population in a very short period of time. And they probably did. Now I bet some of you are wondering what sort of resistance Charles was offering. After all, he had marched back to Paris with the other half of the army. So now that they reached Paris, were they setting up ambushes? Were they trying to engage in street-by-street fighting in an attempt to winnow the numbers of the Vikingers and give the civilians time to flee? Were they marching directly on the boats, seeking to set them on fire and thereby trapping the Vikingers in hostile territory, which would also give Charles time to raise more men from the surrounding area? (laughs) No. They were hiding out in Saint-Denis, and probably watching the city burn while they were safe inside the abbey. But eventually, Ragnar and his men turned their attention on the abbey where the king was hiding. And I bet he could have taken it if he really wanted to. After all, the number of Vikingers who had come to Paris was significant. But, luckily for Charles, that French disease that the Scandinavians had caught while pillaging was starting to set in. Ragnar's men were getting sick, and sick men are weakened men. The longer they stayed, the more danger they'd be in. 
So it was agreed that the looting would stop and Ragnar would leave Paris in exchange for a Danegeld of 7,000 pounds of gold and silver. This was the first of the Frankish Danegelds. It wouldn't be the last. History buffs and members might remember the Celtic leader, Brennus, and how he took over Rome in the 4th century BCE and had to be bought off with a thousand pounds of gold, plus the weight of his sword. Well, inflation's a bitch, because 1,200 years later, Charles is having to pay seven times that amount to Ragnar. But it was paid, and Ragnar returned north, reportedly telling King Horik that the Franks held a remarkably fertile land that was populated by incredibly cowardly people. Which, you know, sick burn. But then something really interesting happened. King Horik apparently had Ragnar's men killed. And Ragnar himself died of some sort of swelling disease after relating the story of St. Germain. Though notably, that particular story comes to us via one of the monks of, you guessed it, the Abbey of St. Germain. So I'm guessing that it's legend. And Ragnar didn't die of dropsy after reciting the story of a Christian saint like some sort of depressing Sunday school version of the exorcist. But I do believe that King Horik either killed some of Ragnar's men, or at least spread the story that he did. Because there was a political side to all of this that Ragnar might not have considered. King Horik, on that same year, had just picked a fight with King Louis the German. And that would have been fine. Denmark probably could handle him, especially since the Frankish kingdoms tended to weaken each other with internal fighting. But Ragnar's raid had just given King Charles something in common with his perennial enemy, Louis the German. Now, they both had a reason to hate the Danes. If they joined together, things could get really bad for Denmark. So Horik's envoys were rushed to Louis's court in East Francia and they brought with them promises to return the booty and the captives from both the raid at Hamburg and the raid of Paris, on the condition that peace must follow. The terms were agreed to, but apparently that didn't last very long because we know that King Horik continued to raid. So that's the story of Ragnar's raid of Paris, and it leaves us with a question. Was the Ragnar of this story the Ragnar from the legends who was the father of Ivor the Boneless. And if he was, was he spared by King Horik? Was it all just a lie to soothe the enraged Franks? Is this where Ragnar met his end? Or are we just looking at a different Ragnar? Historians will probably continue arguing about this for the rest of human history, because I don't think we're ever going to know. But for us, this is not the last time we're going to hear of a Ragnar. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities if you just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and have a look in the upper right-hand corner. They're all there. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>